Kim, and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of September 7th, 2015. Join us this week as we talk with Brian Kite, managing partner at SRK Architects, about his 1994 restoration of the Spanish colonial revival masterpiece, Monterey Park's tile-drenched El Encanto. We'll also speak with Miriam and Victoria Caldwell about their mother, Vilma, the El Monte girl whose 1950s youth was lived out on the razor's edge, balanced between her Catholic faith and flamboyant night spots like Clifton's Cafeteria, where she worked as a professional camera girl. Vilma's true L.A. story is revealed on Miriam's blog, packed with vintage photos and frank diary entries. So stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Park. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of September 7th, 2015. It's nice to be back, isn't it, Kim? It's wonderful to be back, Richard. This week, we have two guests, as always. Brian Kite, he's managing principal of SRK Architects there in downtown 23rd Hill, to be exact. Uh, We're going to talk to Brian about Ellen Conto. Ellen Conto is a 1928 Spanish colonial revival show house for the failed Midwick Estates development by Peter Schneider. It ended up, and we'll get through all, all this, in the hands of the city of Monterey Park happily. In 1994, Brian was retained to restore it, and he did, and we will talk to him about that process and his his M.O. as a, as a Californian, as, an archite- as a restoration architect. So it'll be, it'll be great. Our second guest... This week is Miriam Caldwell. Her mother, Vilma, has a diary, and Miriam is blogging her mother's diary. The title of the blog is Diary of Vilma, the Unconquerable. And of course, we'll have the URL on the page, and of course, we'll be talking with Miriam and her sister, Victoria, about their mother, Vilma, the Unconquerable, and the topsy-turvy days of Los Angeles in the mid 1950s, uh, this is this is a story about El Monte, and it's a story about downtown. It's a story about Clifton's. It's a story about Hollywood nightlife. It's it's a great slice of life, and we're so delighted to have them here. So we'll we'll get into all of this. And Kim, it's now time to mention the Pishka. We've been off the air so long, I forgot we had a Pishka, but we do. It's a digital tip jar. It's associated with the podcast. And if you like what we do and you're so inclined to throw a little something in that tip jar, anything that you contribute will be gratefully received and we'll use it to cover the costs of gasoline and chili rano burritos as we travel the Southland looking for lovely people to talk to, for you to listen to. Never obligatory. Always appreciated. Thanks for your support. Thank you, Pishka Queen. Okay, Kim, let's let's jump into the closely watched train sections. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I, I well, I like this first one. I really like because um, 
you and I have have long openly questioned uh, the the Broadway trolley, the Broadway streetcar plan. We've openly questioned the Broadway master streetscape plan, and after about um, nine months of huffing and puffing and jumping up and down, I've finally uh, been able to submit properly some some feedback that I have about the Broadway streetscape master plan to um, Public Works, which I'm very happy about. Um, I wish it had been easier to do that, but that's that's the nature of government, isn't it? Yes. So um, we, this this closely watched train is just a note. Dash is 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 looking at expanding routes in downtown LA. Dash is the the light bus. I think it's like fifty cents now. We haven't taken Dash in, in a little bit since we left the athletic club. But um, Dash is is this really great light bus service and when you when you spend time on social media amongst groups of people that live downtown that kvetch about the Broadway Master Streetscape plan and the, the the trolley as we do, as we kvetch about it, and we don't live downtown but we spend time on social media about this. Some of the th- one of the things that comes up is why don't you just have dash buses that are more flexible, and and that's exactly what this is, and I'm very happy to see it. Yeah, they're, they're taking some feedback on where people would like to see the dashes. And, and it's interesting because downtown is expanding in ways that couldn't be predicted. You know, you really can't look into your crystal ball and say, well, this particular corner is going to be developed and, and that one isn't. But people are living downtown and they're, and they're frequenting various locations. And, uh, yeah, it probably is time to revisit where these dash buses go and, and how long they operate into the evenings and onto the weekends. I think it would certainly make our passengers happy if they could hop a dash at Union Station. So here's hoping that uh, the Arts District will be better served or served at all by dash in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Kim. And we'll just, we'll just leave the Broadway Master Streetscape plan where it is, which is, in my opinion, really deeply problematic. Okay, you're shaking your head. You don't, you don't like for me to say mean things about the streetcar? I'm not a fan of the Wii streetcar and its little loop, and I haven't been a fan since early days when they said, well, there's just no way it can be a retro, cool, vintage-looking streetcar. That's just not an option. And I think that had something to do with that particular Italian company that was supposed to make the streetcar, and, and then there was some sort of scandal, yeah. and it led to the last director of the CRA having to leave. Who knows? Anyway, I don't know if it's still true, but... Magically, San Francisco has oldie-timey streetcars. We're not getting them. I like the Dash bus. It's a bus, it's honest, and it can go where it needs to go. It can actually turn right if there's a problem in front of it. Kim, I uh, had the privilege of being in an article in the Daily News last week about programmatic architecture. It's an, a nice little write-up. It mentions the tamale. It just mentions... Well, I'm going to let you talk about because I have a hard time talking about myself. I, I don't have a hard time talking about the streetcar, obviously. <laughs> you're not a little streetcar. You're you're a little architectural preservationist, and, and I think you did a great job talking about the wonders of programmatic architecture, which um, is a style that really flourished in the 1920s in Southern California, the notion of buildings that look like giant versions of what you can purchase within. Of course, you've mentioned the Tamale on Whittier Boulevard in East L.A., just near the Montebello border. It is a great favorite of ours that we visit on our Eastside Babylon tour. There's a, a number of these wonderful things that still survive. Uh, there's 
several giant donuts floating around. And, and some good news on the programmatic front, if you're following these things. Um, obviously, the, the, the giant barrel in North Hollywood, uh, the, the Idle Hour is very popular now. They were just restored, it was just restored, multi-million dollar project, and it's, it's gorgeous and very successful. And one of the more endangered programmatic structures down in Long Beach, there's a great little coffee pot, spell it with a K, that's the way they like to spell it. And uh, it's, its most recent iteration was a marijuana dispensary, which tends to be a fairly fly-by-night business. It has been boarded up for the last few years and a great, great source of worry for people who, who love these sorts of buildings. And uh, happily, it has new stewards, and it looks like it's going to be reopening soon. It might even be a coffee shop, so stay tuned and follow that link if you'd like to track some of the programmatic wonders that survive in your community. We, we're, we're actually going to interview the people that are reopening the coffee pot for a podcast soon. Are they going to take us inside? Yeah, so don't worry. So, oh. okay. You, 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 you're such a good husband. You keep me so busy and out of trouble. Thank right. you. So, Kim, I just uh, qu- quickly, so, well, not quickly. So, this next close, this next closely, wa- this is going to take a second. This We agreed. It'll take longer if I interrupt you. That this, this next closely watched train is kind of important. So, we're going to. Maybe we'll, 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 we'll go through this quickly on the podcast, but in the links, in the yes. URL section, we're going to extensively chronicle this because I think, looking back, everyone's going to look at this one as a, as a, as a, as a watershed moment. Well, I, I give you carte blanche to actually have sentences in the links this time and, and write a little essay if you want to. You, you, you do the links, though I don't. Okay, but I did include some some notes on each link I included. So yeah, all right. So um, a couple weeks ago, um, there's a house in Valley Village on Hermitage, and it's where Marilyn Monroe grew up. And the property was going up to the uh, Cultural Heritage Commission for HCM status review. A neighborhood group had put together an HCM application. It was actually where she lived when she was a very young bride. Okay, sorry. Right. That's she, right. She grew up in the in the orphanage, right. Yeah. She lived there for a couple of years, not a long time, but formative in in her. These, these this is and and so it was going up for review, and everyone was really excited because everyone that submits an HCM and gets it accepted and goes before the committee is always really. It's a very anxious moment because you're always thinking, oh, is the developer going to demolish the structure before? But that can't happen because. Because no one involved in in the HCM process, the Office of Historic Resources or the Cultural Heritage Commission, no one is allowed to talk about the application before they review it. So there can't be any actual concern that they'll demolish the structure. And of course, what happened about a week before, three days before the hearing for this structure is it was demolished. Well, that's troubling. Yeah. That's very troubling. Yeah. So I, my understanding is when something like that happens, there's a five-year moratorium on any well, development? Well, there, there, there's a review by, by the Building and Safety Commission, and that review has yet to happen, and, and punishments may be delegated as, as, as they see fit. But re- really, that, that, the, the, the teeth to that don't always, they, they don't always do that. So yeah. let's, let's get to that. So, so the structure's demolished before it can be reviewed for HCM status, historic cultural monument status. And and so and so last week, uh, September one, the group petitioned planning and land use management to to put the stop on 
the green light for the developer who demolished the the house where she lived to develop a condominium structure there and and their 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 appeal was denied and so Plum has given them the go ahead to move forward with with this project and so so it's um so there there are lots of problems with this and um a possible appeal to building and safety I guess will come in a little bit but again these are you know the saying building and safety will 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 stand by the HCM status and the punishment is scorched earth they can't build for 5 years that doesn't always work and so right and then you're also okay let's look at what's actually happened here people in the community took time away from their own lives to learn how to write an HCM to work really hard to try to save something of value of of you know cultural value to the wider city and the world beyond but also to their neighborhood and they were treated like garbage and the thing that they did by the books was completely neglected and and overrun and now they're supposed to continue to take their own time and try to f- continue to fight for a hole in the ground that's about to become redevelopment i mean it's 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 folly to expect these people to continue banging their head against the wall they might be thinking about selling their homes and moving because they're going right. to have to look at this awful okay. thing. It's I, very, very sad. Okay, Kim. So, so they actually are going to continue to bang their heads against the wall, as you so bluntly put it, be, be, because because they're committed to their their neighborhood. Well, well okay. God bless them, really. So, what I want to talk about here now that we've just quickly outlined what's happened is is some concerns that that we've heard from them, having spoken to some people involved in this, and 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 one is that. Um, the HPOZ, the Historic Preservation Overlay Zone, an application for this neighborhood has been denied by the Office of Historic Resources, which I think is really sad. Um, that's a whole half an hour conversation. Um, this structure, the Marilyn Monroe House, was not included in the Survey LA material. It's, it's just extraordinary. Survey LA misses all these things that people in the neighborhoods know are important. How is this happening? And then because it's not in Survey LA, developers say it's not historically significant. And and we have said Survey LA was, was published prematurely. And, and, it's and, 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 and we hurt some people's feelings in the Office of Historic Resources having said that. And, and, and you know what? I'm glad we did because it's a problem. It's really a problem. They missed a lot of stuff. They missed Ray Bradbury's house. That was that was international news when that one was torn down. Everyone in Chevy Hills knew where Ray Bradbury lived. He was a walker. So uh-huh. so and then and then another front is you have the council member Krikorian whose office appears from from what I've discussed with with the neighbors really belligerent towards the the neighbors of single family residences on in in, in this neighborhood about encroaching development and I just that just really breaks my heart because I don't because having spent probably seven or eight years now running around City Hall to different council members this the salient aspect you take away after having spent 90 minutes in a council member's City Hall office is that it's really a real estate development office not a not a council office and that and that really makes me sad yeah. And that, that's, a, that's a generalization for every council member's office in City Hall we visited. I have nothing to say except you're right, it's wrong, and we probably need more 
council districts in the city and less power in individual councilmen's hands. So this is this is this is not going to get solved, but we're calling this out. It's really sad. The, the neighborhood is is trying to retain some character and some some dignity and um and, and I should just say, I mean obviously I'm when I said about being so depressed about losing Marilyn Monroe's house, it's true, but there are still historic structures on that block in that community. They probably do qualify to be an HPOZ, even though they've been refused, and they and they deserve to be able to be treated with respect and dignity, and these HCM nominations that are going forward need to be taken seriously. And developers who destroy buildings that are under consideration as landmarks need to be held accountable. And I, I'm just going to end this with, with my, my biggest concern, which I am I, genuinely concerned that the office of the mayor is shortchanging the resources at the Office of Historic Resources. So this is exactly what happens. It, it happens through acts of omission rather than commission. And I'm, 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 that's, that's really what I want everyone to hear, is that I, I really encourage everyone to get the office of the mayor to allocate more resources to the Office of Historic Resources, because they are obviously overstretched, and, and a lot is falling through the cracks, and we're very concerned. Good. Okay, Kim. The County of Hi. Los Angeles is about to enact its phase two of, of its historic preservation ordinance, phase one, was I think about 18 months ago when they they uh, created Mills Act benefits for uh, historically designate for designated structures, property tax breaks for the owners so they could push the money saved on property tax into preserving the house. This is good. Phase two is about to get on the books, and it's a historic preservation ordinance designating an historic cultural monument status. Do you have any thoughts on this? That's fantastic. I mean, now there's finally a tool for interesting historical structures within the unincorporated Los Angeles County region to be recognized, to be acknowledged, and hopefully preserved. So we're going to definitely be looking very closely at what people in the community choose to do with their landmark favorites, and uh, we might have one or two of our own. The There appears to be a little um, clause in this new ordinance that requires community members who choose to nominate a structure to pay the fees associated. We're going to have to look into what this represents. This may actually be a great inhibition to members of the community. I mean, you're already giving of your time. Are you supposed to write a check, too? Yeah. I've never heard of anything like this. You don't have to do it in Los Angeles. You know, when we worked on the Bukowski nomination for Bukowski Court, on the long prey, we, we put in hundreds of hours, probably, but, but it didn't cost us a dime. I don't know about this. We'll have to see what it looks like. It looks like people might have to crowdfund to pay for nominations, and that becomes a problem because that gets it on the radar of the property owners. Um, okay, so we're going to wait and see. It, it, it's uh, interesting whenever there's a new landmarking ordinance to see how it's going to work in the real world, and all eyes are on it. It's definitely one of our closely watched trains. Thanks, Kim. Kim, the Sasuni arcade sign is gone. The arcade Charles Bukowski wrote about in his home downtown is gone yeah sad story um if you've been listening to the podcast you know that broadway has changed a lot in the last few years some parts of broadway are really thriving lower broadway definitely pretty exciting space in terms of retail and hotels and new development um upper broadway you've got the grand central market which is really popular in the middle things are sort of stagnant and 
there's a great deal of interest in flipping properties down on Broadway, not so much success of people opening new residential or business. The building at 722 or thereabouts uh, South Broadway, um, east side of the street between 7th and 8th, was for many years an amusement arcade uh, called the Sasani Arcade, owned by the the family of that name, who own a lot of property downtown. The arcade shut, well, how long ago was that, Richard? Over a year ago. About a year ago. About a year ago. The arcade shut down. The building was on the market. Um, it, it, it shut down um, 10 months ago oh. because we we had to cancel the November 1 Bukowski tour because we forgot that it was the day after Halloween, and Halloween was a Friday and, like, no one had signed up for the tour a week before, and we were just like, oh, okay, we're going to cancel the store. And it was a little and, more than a week before, but... Okay, but it was... Okay, anyway, so no, so we had to cancel that tour, which is unheard of, and and they just closed. Okay. And so what happened is we had to wait another three months for the Bukowski tour before we were, like, down on Broadway a month, and like, oh, my God, wait, it's gone. And, and we would have, yeah... Yeah, so that was a place we always loved to go and, and talk about this poem that Bukowski wrote um, at, late in his life, remembering the zones of uh, attraction and repulsion down on Main and Broadway that he enjoyed as a young man. So the arcade was gone. My my understanding from the gentleman in clown makeup who hangs out outside is the, the owner of the arcade, whose name I think is Ivan, yeah. um, he has all of his arcade, most of his uh, games he, he kept, and he's got them in storage, and he's looking for a new location. Well, it's 10 months later, we're still looking. Um, building been on the market. It first was going to be lofts. Now it's supposed to be some sort of creative office, but they're very versatile. They have a website. Um, I guess the guys who own the building just decided, you know, we should get rid of this arcade sign so that people can come and look at this and see more of a blank, cl- slate. blank slate. So three in the morning on the Friday of the holiday weekend, the horrible caterwaul, many people went outside and documented this. They were smashing the backlit plastic of the, um, the building-wide facade sign that said things like pinball, snack bar, Sasani Arcade, Really lively, fun, sort of old school uh, Times Square kind of signage. I mean, not not vintage 1940s, probably late 70s, early 80s, but 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 lively and fun and part of the old Broadway. They then got out metal grinders and they removed the incandescent facade-wide sign that said arcade, and the whole thing was destroyed in the middle of the night, so that would be illegally. I mean, they may well have had a permit to remove their sign, but they certainly didn't have a permit to do it at 3 in the morning on a holiday weekend, and uh, just ruined, ruined. Um, If they'd taken the framing off, all those plastic pieces could have easily come off, and someone could have enjoyed them. They were much beloved. Um, I know not everybody likes that style, but... I, I know whenever I put a picture of it up on Instagram and tagged it Sign Geeks, people loved it, and it's it's just one more loss on Broadway, and, and it's one more example of, you know, a gentrifying property owner who really has no respect for the history. That place was a, it was a family place. A lot of people hung out there, took their little brothers and sisters, and played Street Fighter, and it's all gone. Goodbye. I know one tour guide who's really upset. I know, too. Kim, uh, last closely watched train, our friend Gail Holland just wrote a nice piece just seconds before we we started recording, so I threw it in. Um, 
don't want to get too deeply into it. I just want to, you know how you know how I do. We 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 point these things out, and then I talk about what interests me around them. So this is an article by Gail Holland. This is a very gifted writer. L.A. Times assigned to cover Skid Row. It's an article looking at um, some challenges and some explicit concerns the U.S. Department of Justice has about the growing trend in municipalities to basically make homelessness a crime. And and so I'll I'll let you read that article and get into the details. She's very together. She knows what she's doing. I always like when the U.S. Department of Justice is is called out in conjunction with um, criminalizing homelessness downtown. I always and anything to do with civil rights downtown. I always like to remind everyone to not forget Robert L. Meyer, U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California under Richard Nixon. Uh, Robert L. Meyer famously reminded people like the chief of police, that no matter what, whether you were a U.S. citizen or foreign national, everyone in the city of Los Angeles, because it's in the United States of America, has civil rights, <laughs> whether you like that or not. Uh, Robert L. Meyer was um, removed from his position by uh, President Richard Dixon because he refused to issue an indictment against Daniel Ellsberg. Um, he let Ellsberg out of his cell uh, in the Hall of Justice, and set him free, stating that he'd done some some investigation and, and, and put some thought into it, and found there was no no criminal offense. So he was free to go, and um, the Rand Corporation could do whatever it needed to do in civil court about concerns they may have had about whatever putative trespasses he he, he might have made against them. Uh, he also impaneled the Ruben Salazar grand jury. So really, really important guy. And I just when 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 I think about the war, um, the, 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 the war of adjudication that is happening on Skid Row for civil rights and the toll it takes on persons, and it has a huge toll on people. I always think of, of Robert Elmire and what, what he would say, what he walked by today. And uh, I'll just observe, having read the article, I am really sorry to read that the city of Los Angeles is getting so far on the bad side of the U.S. government because we're really going to need a great deal of help from the federal government if we're going to solve this crisis of unhoused people in our community. And criminalizing homeless people and throwing them in jail and seizing their possessions and destroying them is really not the best way to go about that. So I'd like to see our city leaders getting a little more on the right side of justice and uh, making friends in Washington and getting some money pouring in. We need it. Hey, I have a really great idea. What's up? I have a really great idea. This is just, the, I'm just, I'm just thinking aloud, but I'm, this is a really great idea. I think Chief Beck and Eric Garcetti should just call up the U.S. Attorney General and schedule a meeting. He let Eric likes to go to Washington. Just have lunch. Just, hey, what do you think? Let's just, let's just, have a beer, let's have some clam chowder, it's a Friday, let's just talk about what's on your mind. I know, I know, I know former chiefs of police of other Southern California municipalities used to do it. Washington, D.C. for a conference, call up USDOJ, say, hey, I want to talk to the Attorney General of the United States of America. You may not get the Attorney General, but you get, you get person number three or four in the office, and you make some real progress solving problems. So I think I think Eric and, and, and Charlie should think about that. I think that's a good that's a good goal for September for them. And the clam chowder is great in Washington. It is. It's Manhattan clam chowder, mostly in Georgetown. It's really good. So 
we're going to move on. Um, we're going to move on. We've got to get... Oh, upcoming events. Oh, yeah, we do stuff. Yeah, we do stuff. We do, we do a little less than we used to because the salons, the monthly salons are on hiatus and... That's okay. That's... You know, I've been getting a lot of work done on the websites. Um, a lot of stuff has been going on. On Bunker Hill is about to get a new face. All the history blogs are about to get a new face. On Bunker Hill is is the pilot project, the pilot project in which I solve all the problems and, and uncover all the buried bones that, that are in the way of my getting to done. And 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 uh, we're we're gonna we're super excited about on Bunker Hill. And when that gets done, then the other history blogs will just fall into place very quickly and easily. So stay tuned for that. Um, we've got a crime. We've got a forensic science seminar coming up Sunday, October eighteenth. V is for Vice. Um, this is going to be. A, Kim, do you want to talk about this event? Sure. I, okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, on a quarterly sort of schedule, we, we meet at the Teaching Crime Labs of Cal State Los Angeles for these benefits for the Criminalistics Graduate Department, who are doing a lot of cutting-edge research in new techniques in forensic science, and it's one of these very popular all-history-themed programs on October 18th. It's called Vias for Vice. We're going to be talking about a lot of really interesting high-profile crimes that were investigated in the municipality of Beverly Hills. We're also going to be looking at some of the really wildlife that took place in unincorporated L.A. County along the Sunset Strip, including some revelations never before heard about Mickey Cohen's rather frisky wife. So you don't want to miss it. It's definitely something that's going to sell out, and uh, we'd love to see you there. Lavon. Lavon. Yeah, Lavon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You want to come to that? Oh, Kim, wait. Wait, I almost forgot. Um, you know, we have something that I, I almost forgot about. We have, um, our, our annual Union Rescue Mission History Walk and Film Screening. This is Thursday, October 8th. Uh, the walk is at 5, the screening is at 7. Um, for the sake of, of brevity, because, because I'm so emotionally attached to our sixth year of doing this, perhaps you could just quickly give us a, a, a breakdown of these two free and important Los Angeles visionary events in conjunction with the Union Rescue Mission? Of course. Yes, once a year we gather at the Union Rescue Mission in current Skid Row, and we begin a time travel trip to old Skid Row, um, over to the lawn of City Hall and other sites that are associated with early homeless missions in um, Southern California, Union Rescue Mission most prominently. And we really sort of walk our way back to current Skid Row and discuss the evolution of Skid Row as a community, as a neighborhood, the different sorts of people who have come to this space, the different sort of services that have been offered. And it's a real eye-opener. If you've, you've heard about Skid Row and you don't really understand what's going on in this eastern part of downtown and how it got this way and what the crisis is and what the options are for the future, it can't hurt to understand 120-plus years of Skid Row history. So we really encourage people who care about the community and are curious to join us. The walking tour ends. We go up to the roof of the Union Rescue Mission, which has extraordinary views of downtown. It's really a lovely place with some cool repurposed furniture made out of recycled things and a garden that the um, people who live in the mission use. And we get to watch 
And it's the only place you can see this, a really special film, a short film called Of Scrap and Steel, shot in full color in 1949 in front of the Union Rescue Mission and Environs, so basically second and Main Street. It's absolutely unheard of that color footage would be shot on that street at that time. It's an extraordinary document and a really delightful story about how the mission saved one person, and uh, it's a um, pretty great night. I think that you would enjoy it. It is free. We encourage you to come to bring your friends, to come learn more about the Union Rescue Mission, Old Skid Row, and to see of Scrap and Steel, the only place you can. So join us. Perfect, Kim. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad we, we remembered that. Kim, do you just want to mention in passing that I rebuilt the Angels Flight website? I don't know why that's not a closely watched train, but I didn't want to step on your toes. You made the list. Yeah, Angel's Flight, of course, in crisis. We've stepped in to make ourselves of service because who doesn't love a little funicular that is the last vestige of old Bunker Hill uh, connecting what was a grand Victorian neighborhood with the shopping and uh, dining and playing zone beneath. So Angel's Flight is two years now in non-operation because of a feud with the California Public Utilities Commission. Angel's Flight is perfectly safe and ready to operate as soon as the regulators say okay. And here we are with a new website, a donation module which Richard built, which is really um, bringing home the bacon. Bring, yeah. bring, bring it home the bacon. Yeah, because after two years, the nonprofit that runs and owns Angel's Flight has said, you know, we really need some help. We've been paying all of our bills with no income coming in because we haven't been able to take passengers, and we've actually gotten down to the bottom of the pot, and we need some help. So the community is rallying. It's wonderful. The new Angel's Flight website is mobile-friendly, so if you're on your phone, go to angelsflight.org, and you can see it. You can uh, click over and sign the petition showing your support for a revived Angel's Flight when we've, of course, asked for some help from the mayor, and we've we've gotten a little help. He's asked the MTA to produce a report, which we'll have at the end of the month. The, 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 the office of the mayor is doing a lot, but we're just not allowed to talk about what they're doing. Which, I can which, say which that is, much. You, you can say that much, but they're doing a lot more than that. It's just, yeah, it's 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 happening. It's wheels are spinning. Right, and what spinning you, spinning like and and getting traction, like Angel's Flight. So what you want to do if you if you care about Angel's Flight is all at all, and I know you do if you're listening to this, sign that petition if you haven't yet because we'll keep you updated with uh, emails that come through the change.org engine and uh, anything big that happens, you will know about it. And there are some big things coming, so stay tuned and we'll see you on Angel's Flight. Right, and that's why I brought it up in the events section because we are going to have one or two things in the fu near future to announce about Angel's Flight and we're, we're super excited. So, so thank you for doing that, Kim. All right, we're going to get into our interviews. So our first interview is with Brian, the architect. So we're going to introduce our second interview, Miriam, first. Okay. Okay, so we're going to interview Miriam, and we interview her sister, Victoria. So we're going to talk to Miriam and Victoria about their mom, Vilma. Okay, Vilma's kind of a genius. Uh, Vilma, famously growing up, had has, they have her diaries, and these are famous objects of the household gods as they grew up. Uh, grew up a Catholic family in El Monte. So this is this is this great slice of life story about growing up in El Monte, working at Clifton's as a camera oh, this is so great. Alright. So yeah. I, I'm sorry. 
if you think, oh, it's so cute, these girls found their mom's diary from the 1950s in El Monte, and she's like, I put on my bobby socks and I went to the prom. Oh no. Oh no. Vilma is, Vilma is a firecracker. She's gorgeous. She's sassy. She's kind of mean. She's kind of wild, and she tells it like it is. This is a great document of old L.A., and it's all illustrated with incredible photographs. This is a really, really special project, and I'm so glad we can share it with you. Yeah. So so the, the, the proper the title to the, the blog is Diary of Vilma, the Unconquerable. Diaryofvilma.com will include all of these in the URLs. Um, we're, I, 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 yeah, we're going to just we're gonna leave. It, there's a lot. There's, there's, there's. Miriam is great. Victoria is great. They're, they're having a lot of fun with this, and and we'll be, we'll be back. Any, anything else? Have you forgotten anything, Kim? Mm, Vil, Vilma rocks. That's all yeah. I need to say. Yeah. Okay. So let's um, our our first interview. We'll we'll segue into our interview with Brian Kite. So let's talk about Brian. So, uh, Brian is the managing principal at SRK Architects in downtown Los Angeles, Twenty Third and Hill. Great building, by the way. Great building. Um, it's really cute. Um, when we, we scheduled our interview <laughs> with him, his office manager called me like for, like the morning of the interview and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so confused. I'm looking at your email. Is Brian supposed to meet you at the orthopedic children's hospital thrift store next door to us? Or... <laughs> <laughs> is he, or is, are you are you coming? I'm, I mean, it's okay because it's just next door. But I'm, we're, we're, we're everyone's kind of confused, and I just need to figure this out because he's got a full day. So you scheduled a visit for me to the thrift store as part of this, and I appreciate that because, of course, the the thrift store is beneath uh, Longstreet's Palms, which are perhaps the oldest row of palms that survive in Los Angeles, and then right under them, somehow survived uh, being next to one of those awful Jeff Palmer developments. They're still there. The thrift store is still there. And that's where I got my desk. I'm, I'm rather yeah. fond of that thrift store. So, yeah, yeah I guess you sent a, a Google invite that included my thrift store stop, right? Well, what I, I said in the email was was um, I made the appointment for three, and I said, you know, I, we may need a little wiggle room. We may need 315, and I'll let you know because the, the really good thrift store is next door. And we're going to be tagging oh. it kind of tight, and and like I guess they meant that maybe anyway. So well, if, listen, if Brian wants to go thrift shopping with me, that's fine. I, I'm not even going to fight him over the good stuff because okay. I like him. Um, he's also like three feet taller than you, so I don't I don't think there's any competition for um you competing for coats. Um, so so Brian's a really great guy. Um, his dad he's a second generation. His dad's a great architect. His dad design, designed 9000 Sunset Boulevard, the, the Brill Building West. He uh, he designed Wallach's Music City. This is Brian's father. So this is this is his this is his this is his and the pedigree speedway. and the speed that's right and the speedway out in Irwindale. Irwind, yeah, the Irwindale speed. So his dad's great, Brian's great. He comes out of a design family. He's a preservation architect. We're going to talk to him about his restoration of El Encanto in Monterey Park. It's a very important structure. Um, Brian is one of the many projects SRK Architects is currently involved in, and we will come back in, in, in soon. We will come back in future episodes to discuss other projects they're working on. But one of the projects they have in uh, that they're currently working through is a remodel of the Los Angeles Athletic Club. And so I would just like it, for the record, know that Brian was not responsible 
for the third floor men's room remodel several years ago. He had nothing to do with that. Okay. Yeah, because we might have to deck him. It was a really, really great bathroom. So, uh, he's really great. We're going to talk to him about... LA. We're going to talk about preservation and the future and repurposing and social fabric and public policy, everything. It's It's a great interview, so let's take it away with my interview with Brian. Brian, Brian, I'm here with you. We're at your architecture firm, SRK Architects in downtown Los Angeles. Please properly introduce yourself. Thank you. I am Brian Arthur Kite. I'm an architect of 35 years, practicing in California, and uh, enjoying every every torturous moment of this for all the many years that I've been doing it. Perfect. Okay. Um, we will we will get into other aspects of your career and your father's career in later podcasts. But oh, we'll do a podcast with your dad first to promote it. That'd be great. That's what we're going to do. We'll we'll do the po- okay. Back on topic. Okay, but we're here today to talk about El Encanto, which is a building which is on the California Register of uh, California Register of Historic, historic Monument Places. Pla- it's on the, the it's on the State Registry of Historic Places. You were the restoration architect in 1994. Why don't you just jump into the middle and tell us about this completely amazing Spanish colonial revival? Uh, showcase house for a failed real estate development from 1928. 28. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, it was when the at a point in time when Los Angeles County was growing rapidly, and housing housing people were coming to California like crazy, and housing developers were buying large tracts of land and doing whatever they needed to do to compete and attract buyers. And in this particular case. Uh, this developer in 1928, obviously before the crash, went whole hog to create one of the most amazing sales offices and structures in Monterey Park, which was primarily raw land at that time. Yeah. And well, let's let's actually let's take a break. Let's mm-hmm. just kind of come up to speed on Monterey Park, which I can do. Uh, Monterey Park comes into being 1916, 1915, something like that. Does a does a lot of business uh, selling building permits which where nothing ever happens because people drill for oil. So there's this oil bust in Monterey Park before World War, right right around the time of Peter Schneider, which is why Monterey Park doesn't become a, a really commuter suburb till post-war. Mm-hmm. So so Monterey Park is this really interesting, um, really interesting neighborhood. Peter Schneider is the developer you're yes. talking about. Yes. He comes to Monterey Park. He comes to Monterey Park um, after developing some commercial development. On, this is on Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So Schneider is interesting because he does a lot of uh, development uh, in what is now the City of Commerce at Telegraph at Atlantic. Ah. Does. Interesting. And then he comes north on Atlantic. And at Whittier and Atlantic, he does the theater, the, uh, the movie, the Golden Gate Theater. He does the Golden Gate Theater and and working in blue-collar developments around there. And then he moves north, and by 1928, he wants to build his Beverly Hills of the East. Yes. And we have Midwick Estates. Midwick View Estates. Midwick View Estates. So with that, with that background, let's get to 1994. You've been retained to restore this beautiful structure. The most uh, interesting thing about it is... 
at the first glance of the building, you could see that there was an incredible building within, but it had been layered over by years and years of alternate uses, everything from being a USO during the war to being converted to residential uses to having the property uh, be created with property lines through it and literally bifurcating on both sides of the property the original building. <laughs> Because the original building had a main, continued a main building with a with a, a second story uh, overlook, and then a colonnade on either side for sales offices, and that's what its original intent was: is that the the main building, which is the part, portion that I was retained to to do the restoration for, really constituted the the the, the core of the of the complete structure, but which was sold off to to parcelize on either side and, and currently exist today as single family residences. But the main portion of the building <laughs> remains intact. So when we came along in about 1992, what we discovered was that we couldn't actually see what all the historic fabric was underneath the building. And, and so we were in a position of wanting to start the job, but not having enough information to start the job. So we actually proposed, and the city accepted this, the city owned the building, to do a, a selective historic demolition. Oh. In other words, to remove right. non-historic fabric so right. we could see what, what we had underneath it. And so that's what we did. And, and this was this was before you actually gave them a, 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 bill, a bid for how, for how to restore it. I mean, just just to sort you you wanted to see what was there before you really got down to a, a, an item by item restoration. Correct. In fact, what we what we did with that information, we actually did an addendum to the historic structures report based upon the information we gleaned from that selective demolition that actually informed not only the historic stru structures addendum, but us as restoration architects to proceed with the plans to actually um, do the restoration. So there were there were it was really a, a lot of forensic architecture involved in this. I, I love it. Before we go any further, you have to, in its, as, as it exists now, restored. You have to attempt to describe the Spanish colonial revival showcase space, which was meant people were going to come in. People were meant to walk in, see all these different features, and just say, "I want that. I want that. Yeah. And I want that on that lot, all the way at the top of the hill there." Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, of course, to begin with, the building is a beautiful, has three gorgeous large arches that you pass through. Each of them have French, curving French doors and windows uh, and, and, and a, a beautiful mission tile roof over that and a sign that, that says El Encanto. And it's, and, and, it's, and it's absolutely a gorgeous composition. The front yard, which faces the the Midwick Hills, which yeah. is which is basically a a whole other story in and of itself, yeah. is the terminus of of a of a cascade of waterfalls that go several blocks up the hill. So it was an amazing complex in and of itself. And this uh, as is the terminus. the The garden in front of of El Encanto is a historic garden with fountains and a, an undulating wall along the right along the sidewalk that really separated from the street and and it was really intended to impress and and of course once you enter the building of course it's a it's a volume space two levels with uh, the, the the beam work would be equivalent to say the Biltmore in Santa Barbara 
Yeah. It has, yeah. it has, so I, the, I, this stenciled, this yeah. stenc colored stenciled work on this dark wood. It's, 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 it's amazing. Wrought iron work that's, that, and, and then there's a, uh, a sort of, uh, a, a beautiful little stair that, that's very intimate little stair yeah. that goes up to an overlook that's. Well, more like, more like a, almost like a choir space, just like right. a little, a little, a little alcove. Right. It's really an alcove. There's, there's no particular function. It's just a very small room, but it's, it's it's uh it, it's just an amazing space that you you would want to you want to do something very special and overlook and and uh, say say a wonderful speech or something and then come down the, these intimate little stairs but it uh so then there are rooms off of the main room there's a beautiful fireplace with original tile work and and yeah. and the the uh, you know obviously it's testimony to a combination of real skilled craftspeople and and a design that was incredibly inspired. The there was no there were no records on the building particularly that I know well. Wow. And wow. so well, we really, just yeah. just for the record, tile in that building is Rufus Keeler, Calco, and yeah. DNM tile. Okay. Fireplaces are DNM, and the tile work on the and the the fountains are Calco. Uh-huh. And do you want to talk about the because Dina made them? Do you want to talk about the Spanish galleon free tile friezes on the entranceways between the cypress trees? Oh, uh, there. Uh, oh, okay, I'll remember. Okay, yeah. they're beautiful. You walk on each. Oh, this, uh, keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just wanted <laughs> no, to. Call, no, I wanted you know, to call out the, the craftsman. I want. I wanted to call out the tile work because yeah. it's just the tile work is phenomenal. Yeah. If there's nothing. There's nothing like it. I remember when I, I do recall that during the process. I mean, to find. Individuals that could restore in individual pieces and and sure. and all the subcontracting trades that you know I, it was a, and this is twenty years ago now so it's it's it, admittedly it's a little bit foggy but but it's I I know that this was something that absolutely had to be restored to perfection. Yeah, yeah, it was just I bet I bet the 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 person that restored the tile was amazed to see all of this tile. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Well, and so much of it was just was just covered over. I mean, there was there was very little that was visible. I mean, the the, the fountains were there, but but little else that, that you could see. So, um, give us give us a bit of of the process. So, the the city decides it wants to be restored. You do some very specific surgical demolition, sort of peel away at the layers. How do you figure out what's there and what's not supposed to be there? Were there any? I, I know, and I, will, I guess this is my real question. In the course of my work there with the Chamber of Commerce, who maintains the space, there's talk. They, they keep mentioning that, that the, the wall on the south side is not was not original. That they Correct. added. So maybe start with that. The, sure. the, the determining that there's a wall that's been added since I guess when the USO was there, maybe. Correct. So uh, I believe that the the well the wall. I do know the wall was not. Um, was not historic, but what we needed to be able to do was to create a patio, is, which was came as close to the original as we could possibly could make it without any particular um, historical evidence to go by. We look for we look for evidence of foundations, and I believe, if I remember correctly, there there was some evidence foundations. So we tried to be as faithful as we could. We did use the original historic structures report that was done by Martin Weil, and then we were the authors of the addendum to that report. So we. I haven't uh, looked at that in, in, in many years now, but but uh, there 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 was evidence that we followed. Um, there was less historical um, 
interest on the back than there is on the front, because just as you would imagine, back in 1928, it was the back. It was not the front. But it was a a building that had access, visual access, all the way through, and so it it needed to have a patio on both sides to balance the the composition, and so it was a very... um, it was nice to be able to have a little bit of latitude in that particular area. And, um, Perfect. Um, what what was this? Was this a, a, a watershed project for you? I mean, this is something you think about still. I, I guess watershed is the wrong word. This is you you you, you fondly remember this. So, this, as this look, is, looking thirty five years into it, how does this rank in terms of projects when you look back on your career so far? As I look back on my career, this project, though not by scale, but by importance of the structure, importance of the venture, and the and the emotional connection that I personally have to that building, having done so much to so carefully uncover it and then reconstruct it is the most important project in my portfolio. Wow. Okay. Well, this then, we're going to wrap it up then with asking you, you, you build structures today. You, you are involved very much in environ, creating environments today. What, what, is, what is the role of the architect today as it, as, as it was different? In 1928, Peter Schneider retained an architect. It's a very different client client uh, architect relationship in 1928 than it is in 2015 maybe give us a little insight into that sure sure so buildings are living living objects they 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 modify over time because of the way people use them people u- change the uses in them obviously they have very different vastly different uses than the, than they had then the original structure the static structure the composition the art that was put into that building by virtue of its original design and execution of that design back in 1929 was so extraordinary that it retains all of its beauty and value in 2015 so therefore there i couldn't i could you could anyone would want to office there, live there, be there even today. So it's, it's a completely relevant, as relevant today as it was in, in 1928 or during the time that we restored it. Perfect. Um, do you just give us, give us a little bit on you now? It's been, it's been a, a minute or two since you did that project. You were, just, you, you were a lot earlier in your career. Yes. What, what, what have you done since then that you'd like people to look at? Because they're going to they're finish listening. They're going to go to the podcast page and click on all the hyperlinks. So give us, give us sure. some stuff to so, chew on as they, as they can look at the, the guy that restored it and, and your, your vision as a, as a current modern architect. And I, I mean modern with a, with a lowercase m. Yes. Thank you. So, so our, our current practice that, that, that I uh, run in, uh, called SRK Architects um, ha, it has a lot of historic projects as well as new buildings. We're, we're, we are a multifaceted firm, but we're currently doing the renovation of the Elks Lodge in San Pedro. That, that burned down just, yeah. just over a year ago in 1965, very important, yeah. iconic building. And so that's one of our probably most important projects. When we do my birthday bus tour next year, you'll give us a tour. That's we'll, we'll, and, we'll, we'll, and it'll be done then. Good. So. Okay. Okay. Good. 20, 2016 birthday bus is San Pedro, Watts, Compton, and Rancho's Palos Verde. So I'm going to hold okay. you to a Very walkthrough good. of the Very Elks good. Lodge. <laughs> Um, we're also doing a major renovation of the Los Angeles Athletic Club, the 1911 John Parkinson Building, obviously a very utilitarian, uh, historic high-rise building, but we're gutting yeah, Desperately in need of new carpets in the men's locker room. The men's locker room has been completely demolished. In fact, it's being completely reconstructed. We gutted two, floor, two levels of that building, and so that's, that's uh, uh, among the... 
um, historic work of the firm. Um, and, oh, and let me just yeah. for the record, you you you're, you and your firm were not responsible for the demolition of the third floor bathroom. I just I just want that on the record. That's correct. We were not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can say that. We can say that. I'm sorry. Keep yeah. keep going. Just so, give us a couple. So more. Um, so we well, the other work of the firm. We're doing a major renovation of an office building in, in, that overlooks the ocean in Playa del Rey, uh, adding a third floor. Uh, excuse me, a, a roof deck to overlook the Bologna wetlands and doing a major, major renovation. A lot of our work is renovation work. We're also doing a, a new 160,000 square foot corporate um, headquarters facility for Walker Zanger, the stone supplier. Oh, yeah. So that's that's probably our largest project. And, and um, we also do a lot of work for Los Angeles County, where uh, we do uh, some project management services and a, a wide variety of things. I've always loved all aspects of the design and architecture business and construction business as well. So, so we're a multifaceted firm. But my first love is historic restoration. I was involved in the the uh, Plaza de Culturas. In oh, downtown yeah. Los Angeles, yeah, of course, the, the, the Brunswick building, the Brunswick building, and yes. the Brunswick Brunswick Annex when it was there, yeah. and the old plaza, oh, the Gloria Molina <laughs> tore the Brunswick Annex down. Oh, God yes, bless her. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, that has a fabulous history. as the first Los Angeles gas works. Yeah. The first street lamps in Los Angeles were p placed there. The a, old cr plaza a, a, cr a crime lab for the sheriff's department the in the 1950s the through the right, 1980s. The, the current one was built. And uh, a, 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 a great, it represents really the third uh, turn of the century history of Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, oh, good. When we do my, my uh, Sin and Salvation walking tour of the plaza, you can take us through the Brunswick building. You're just you're going to be you're going to be busy on weekends. I'm going to be busy on weekends. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's um, let's let's bring this home. Let's go back to El Encanto. Let's talk about let's talk about ornament. As a function of architecture, pre-war, uh, pre-war pre twenty. I mean, you, you have Ellen Condo is perhaps the greatest example of a public building in Southern California. One of the greatest examples in Southern California of of what this unique California craftsman tradition uh -huh. was before, right before the crash. Today, what 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 does California have? What does Southern California have to offer in terms of design? It's total. It's a totally different world. I just want maybe totally you you could you world, could all the references that are used in El Encanto could be used today. The the go use, the, the use of corbels and the the way that the way that detailing was uh, it all derives from classical architecture, Greek and Roman architecture, and 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 motifs that are that were applied then and so incredibly integrated into a single whole composition as very few buildings in Los Angeles area. And, um, you know, the, the, the a little bit testimony to labor costs yeah. and, and, and the fact that time was really not as, 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 as important as, as the final product. And, and this was a time when art and, and architecture and craftsmanship were completely married. Yeah. And that's as, not that has since been gone away, gone by the wayside. I, I guess right, and I guess maybe just to sort of bring this really home very quickly. In in the, in the in the day, Rufus Keeler, when today, 
fin fixtures, details, you pull them out of a catalog. They're, they're mass produced. I say this is a good thing. I say this, this saves you time and labor. To, to build these environments, you can pull stuff, prefabricated fixtures, fittings, doorways out of catalogs. But back in 28, you had these sort of indications, and the mason and the architect had this sort of intuitive understanding to get from a blueprint to a finished product. Right. There was, there was the, the architect's vision, the sketch pad, and the craftsman that, that the architect spoke with and to, and they understood one another. There was no building department intermediary. There were no particular codes. It was common sense. It was time, and it was it was the passion for the outcome that mattered. And in fact, and that's but that's what shows. And today, buildings are a kit of parts, literally, which which are filtered through the bureaucracy of whatever municipality yes. the, the buildings are constructed in. Yes. So it becomes more and more difficult to, to infuse art, and it absolutely is becomes it's nearly impossible to get any level of craftsmanship in buildings today that, that exist, that once existed. Okay, well, let's end on a positive note. Let's, what, was, what was the one, because that's sort of depressing. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's, it's true. I, I, I brought it up. I, brought, I, I wanted to go down the road. Um, what, name one or two things that you've carried with you since you undertook the restoration in 94 as, as an architect. Patience. Patience. The, 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 the process of restoring a building, whether it's a complete historical structure or, or just a beloved structure from some time in the past, everything that was built from 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago has elements that are worth saving. And, and in, in, in our practice, that's the first thing we look at is what, what's worth saving and what, what should not be saved, what's falling down and what's worthy of saving. Seismic codes have a lot to do with that today. Sure. But in a building but, like but, this but, that is... But, but to interrupt you, seismic codes have a lot to do with it, and epoxy technology and, oh, and yes. elastopolymers have a lot to do with strengthening inherently, traditionally inherently weak edifices, which the seismic code would, would make un unplausible. Absolutely, absolutely. And so how, how we use technology to, to, yes. to create the ability to save things that might not have been able to be saved and how we wrap new technology around historic fabric is really the hardest part and the part where you really have to have a passion for it and you have to have a love of it and it does take more time and, it's, and it won't be uh, anything you do for any other reason other than the, the love of the, the, the final work that okay. you would create. Okay, I see how you're going to take this home. Behind me, you're looking at the poster that you did for the, the proposal for Dodger Stadium. Yes. The Googie Roofs. Yes. That's, that's how you're going to bring us home. That's, that's it. So we were engaged to look at the re-envision re Dodger Stadium, and one of the most interesting this aspects... a couple of years, 2012. Years, 2012, when the franchise was for sale, and we looked at the outfield pavilions, which really looked like grandstands that would look temporary, but they had this beautiful googie architecture on top, which really constitutes very little just corrugated metal, but they're the most iconic element of the stadium, almost. I mean, literally, no, they're, almost. They're, they're very iconic, and the, the firm that built those, they were, they were pressed by someone that really cared. 
but probably you know, yeah. they, they were built by a complete genius yes. who was an Eastern European national, yes. I imagine, yeah. whose, whose father trained as a cabinet maker in Vienna from the age of 13 to 17 and then was enlisted in World War I and somehow came here. Yeah. But just this passion for fabrication that yeah. doesn't exist anymore. So, so what we had proposed is literally to rebuild the outfield pavilions by carefully removing them, yeah. building three levels below them, and then reinstalling them on top in their exact condition because they are, they're such an important part. So that's a case where literally uncoupling the building and recoupling the building and its important components is, would, it would have been, and this is not a built project, something that we studied and, and made proposals and is currently uh, in, in their hands, but uh, an ambitious project. But yes, but the vision, I mean, that's, that's it. Just you have to sometimes pull a building apart to save what the, the salient, important historic aspects of it, Absolutely. so everyone remembers it. Absolutely, and in the case of that, you can see it. In the case of El Encanto, you couldn't see it, so we literally had to dig till we could find out what was under, and then and then figure out what to do. So it had to be in two parts then. Perfect. Um, just as a way to sort of uh, wrap this up, tell us about your dad. Your dad was an architect. Your dad, your dad, dad is an architect. He's yeah. still licensed with He's the state. He's still licensed. He, he paid his license fees last year, and I said, I don't know what you're going to do with that, but you go. He gets to spend his money on beer and licensing his, fees right. all he wants to. You know, doesn't uh, smoke anymore. Doesn't but, smoke anymore. He put the cigarettes down but uh, in the 60s. But um, he is a brilliant he, he actually, the story he would tell is he got a B on a, he was going to be an artist and he got a B on something and, and he got disgusted and switched to architecture. So he's, he's, he, he really is in the genre of a true artist architect and, and, um, when he was in practice up until 2009, up in Lake Arrowhead, California, he, every single project that he did, he would do his own, he would do a free rendering. Right. Sometimes it would be in charcoal, sometimes, right. but he, he really is of the, the era of, of artist architect like n no other. And um, I'm very proud of him, and he obviously inspired me to go into this silly profession. So many hours and dark circles under one's eyes to get, get through the, uh, the process. But uh, it's a labor of love. And uh, it's wonderful to be a second-generation architect in Los Angeles and, and um, still have him around to see a couple of the few little things that I've done in my life. Thank you so much, Brian. You're entirely welcome, Richard. Thank you. My name is Pat Adler Ingram. I'm in the Lummis home. And you are listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Miriam, Miriam, I'm here with you. We're in El Monte. And we're going to talk about your mom. So what I'd like for you to do is to properly introduce yourself and in your role as your mother's blogger. Okay. Uh, my name is Miriam Caldwell. And um, I'm currently doing a blog called The Diary of Vilma. And this is a blog about my mother's life. Um, actually, her single life um, back in the mid-50s. Um, and this is, of course, when before she met my father. Um, and she goes, you know, she's going to many different types of clubs that are back in Hollywood, um, Clifton's. Um, we have the Biltmore Hotel. We have, I forget. Okay, good. <laughs> so, okay, no, don't get nervous. Okay, you're doing great. So, so we're obviously linking to the blog. This blog is your, uh, let's, let's step back. 
let's let's go back to your mom's passing because that was okay. a real milestone for this for this project. This is really where this project, the rubber hit the road for this project. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so um, my blog started because um, my mom actually passed away three years ago, and of course, um, as her you know daughter going through um, her belongings. Um, we had just rediscovered um, many, many of her old pictures, her diaries, her diaries, which are the catalyst to um, this particular project. Um, so I really felt that this was a very unique and interesting story. And I really, I couldn't contain myself and I had to put it out there in some sort of fashion at this point. Um, so that's where I started my blog. Perfect. Okay. So uh, before we get into it, why don't you list the years for which you have diaries? Okay. Um, my mom actually has four of her diaries um, that we still have. I'm not sure what happened to the other ones, but we do have her schoolgirl diary from the 19 from 1950, where she was a schoolgirl um, here in El Monte, California. Um, and then we've got her other diaries, which are 52, 54, and 55. And those are really the diaries where she's really just starting her dating life and starting to explore the world of dating in nightclubs and um, you know things things like that and um, they're obviously going to the famous places and Clifton's and perfect okay. perfect perfect no that's perfect okay good so um, we we picked so. You're, you you start with a with a year and the year you started with for your blog is 1952. I started with that one. Great. And starting in the middle is good. It's very good. So we are going to do a bit of a sneak preview on this interview because we agreed we were going to talk about 1954, okay. which is good, which is very very good. Right. Very good reasons to do this. So um, before we uh, so we're just gonna. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna jump in, and we agreed we're gonna break this down into two days in the life in 1954. A day at work mm -hmm. as the camera girl at Clifton's Brookdale and South Seas, okay. and a night out, a Saturday night out at at, at in, in El Monte okay. on on a double date. So let's um, why don't we start with Clifton's? Because okay. I'm just I'm standing here. I love all these fo these. Okay, let's. I'm gonna hand you. Uh, wait, did we have a, we had a blank one. The blank one. Yes, there's the blank one. So I'm going to, so I, I'm going to hand this to you. And because this is a podcast, we have to explain to people what is in your hand. Okay. So what I have in my hand is a typical, um, photo cover. Um, this would be a cover that, um, would go in a picture once my mom took the picture. Um, but the cover, um, is uh, a description of a Polynesian theme, Aloha from Clifton's, which would be a cover either for Brookdale or Pacific Seeds. Um, upon opening the cover, um, there would be your picture and a description of um, what Clifton's is all about, how it was established. Um, it would also contain additional information on um, the, the South Seas location, uh, the meditation garden, the main dining room, other pictures for your, um, you know, your tourist pictures and things like that. Um, on the back of it, actually, I think I love this, is yeah. a poem called The Doors, yeah. um, which is, yeah. I think, anybody that knows Clifton's is... You should, you should, you should read us the poem okay. The Doors on the back of the wow. photo book, so hold, hold on a second. Right. Okay, go. 
Okay, so this is the doors. Um, it's written by Lona McDorman. Some doors have hearts, it seems to me. They open so invitingly. You feel that they are quite kind, akin to all the warmth you find within. Some doors, so weather-beaten gray, swing open in listless way, as if they wish you had not come. Their stony silence leaves you dumb. Some classic doors sound closed and barred, as if their beauty might be, might be marred. If they sought admittance there, save king or prince or millionaire, oh, may mine be a friendly door, and may all who cross the threshold over within find sweet content and rest, and know each was a welcome guest. That is beautiful. That's a, that's a really great poem. We'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. I want you to open it up to the first page, okay. and I want you to explain what that is. What the, 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 there, there's a stock image, and I need you, I need you, this is whole, sort of the whole crux of the photo book, is, is in this image you're looking at, which you're going to explain. Right, okay. So the image, the, the image is just a stock photo, and obviously your photo <laughs> that you took are, is supposed to go right on top of that one. Right. Um, but there's a, the stock photo contains a picture of a standard camera girl with a couple of patrons sitting at the restaurant, which in this case looks like it's the Brookdale location. So, um, so what my mom would do as a camera, one of the camera girls on staff, and there was a count, I'm not sure exactly how many camera girls there were, but there's, there's quite a few of them. We, we, um, we, we have a, a standing uh, to-do list with Andrew Myron to get to the, your mother's personnel records. Uh, upstairs. So we'll, no. we'll get to all of that. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, so what she would do on her work day, her, on her normal work day, um, she would go into Clifton's and, um, there would actually be a, um, a backstage changing room where all the girls would change yeah. into their costumes. So, um, their costumes would kind of consist in the kind of a peasant girl costume at Brooktail. And then, the Pacific Seas locations, you would kind of get a little bit more blinged out in the tiki attire. So you would have the lei and the little flower in your ear. Sometimes my mom wore these gorgeous flower earrings, um, but she'd be all dolled up, um, you know, just meandering around, you know, walking through the crowds of people that come to Clifton's. I guess there was up to... 15,000 meals served a day. Oh, or, yeah, yeah. But yeah. this is one of the biggest, yeah, it was huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's 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 cut to the chase. Okay. Your mom had a quota. Yes. Let's talk about the quota and let's talk about goals and objectives to hitting the quota. Okay. So there would be um, she would go in and she would know what her quota the boss the boss would give her her quota for the day and reading through her diaries it looked like it was anywhere between like twenty five dollars per day and like forty five dollars per day. Well, my mom, of course, wanting to reach her quota. Um, oftentimes would, uh, <laughs> would, um, um, well, well, actually men would actually ask her out, um, because she was very beautiful. So men would ask her out and the only reason might, why she might consider going out with him is if they bought a picture from her. So that would be one way she made her quota. And actually she was very successful at making her quota. Um, most of the days she worked. <laughs> Very good, very good. We'll 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 leave we'll leave for another another interview. Your your your, your mother and the end and and her exit from Clifton's. Yes, <laughs> awesome. We'll leave that for we'll leave that for an, another time. You know, try and get some more information from Andrew Myron. Um, let's uh, let's jump ahead to Saturday night. Okay, she's an El so before we jump into Saturday night, explain that your mom is an El Monte girl, yes. right? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, original. Um, born and raised in Almonte. Her parents moved here to Almonte back in the 40s, and you know she was born and raised, and she knew all the great hangouts in Almonte, and Almonte Legion Stadium was one of the great hangouts of, of the area. Um, for every, actually, LA, all LA residents yeah. knew Almonte Legion Stadium. Perfect. So let's, uh, let's jump into a, Satur- a double date on a Saturday night with your, with your mom. Well, because during the week she had um, been working at Clifton's and during the day she was soliciting for those dates, so she would always try to have a date planned for the weekend, so, uh, so it makes sense, right? So on a Saturday night, she would gather up maybe a couple of her girlfriends and do go out on double dates with these men that would just, you know, you know meet her at her house and they would go out and they would hit the town. Um, the town being anywhere from, again, El Monte Legion Stadium, that was a big one, the Stomp, um, which is Cliffy Stone's Jamboree. Um, this, this was, this was the, the, a night sponsored by Cliffy Stone yes. at the stadium. At the stadium, right, exactly. Thank you for the clarification. Um, so, um, so that would be one of the hangouts that she would go to um, El Monte. And then not only that, but they would... Um, you know, hobnob and go towards, you know, anywhere in L.A., um, going to the Paris Inn, the Macombo, um, Moulin Rouge. We're, we're now getting into Hollywood, which now was a bit of a drive. Right. Yeah, so obviously these men um, did have cars, and they had very nice, flashy cars as well. So, And, and this is this is 54, the, the San Bernardino Freeway is open. Mm-hmm. The San is a yeah. freeway connecting El Monte to downtown yes. and almost into Hollywood, I think. The 101, wow. Absolutely. So it was just a hop, skip, and a jump away. And El Monte from Los Angeles is really not that far. It's maybe about 15 minutes. So, um, you know, they would cruise down in their Cadillacs and their Chevys and (laughs) Buicks and, you know, all those great cars from back in the 50s. Um, And they would just have, you know, a blast on the town um, going from place to place. And it just wasn't always one place. They hit all of the places a lot of the times. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay, so this is two great slices of life. Let's, let's get down to brass tacks. Let's get down to the, the motivation. for Your, your, your mother has a, a spiritual path mm-hmm. that these, these diaries right. unfold. And so before we go, Vicki, we're going to have you come in in a minute. But sure. let's just, um, that's her sister. Why don't we, why don't you because this is the introduction, give us this spiritual path that you're here to document that your mom was on. Well, part of my mom's story is that um, she was very faithful, um, and she was always a believer. She was a very, you know, tried to be a very good girl, tried to be a very good Catholic girl. Um, But you can imagine being young and beautiful and having all these dates, all these guys coming to her door. It's just a revolving door at her house for all these men. And she was very, very convicted that she would save herself for marriage. Um, so she was, had that conviction, but her diary also documents her struggle with that temptation. So I think that part of it is very relevant even in today's world oh. as well. Absolutely. Yes, spiritual paths are relevant every, every minute. We just, mm-hmm. we just have to, they just change from decade to decade, which mm-hmm. is why your mother's blog, the blog about your mother's diary is so interesting because the spiritual path is so different today than it was even just 60 years ago. Absolutely, definitely, yeah. So that path is, um, luckily she does 
write about this, those struggles that she had, and they're real. You know, they are, you know, real and raw sometimes. Um, you know, as you can imagine, she's writing in her diary. So she doesn't think anybody's really necessarily reading this stuff right now until, you know, fast forward to 2015. Now, here we go. <laughs> so now her story is, um, will hopefully be, you know, told out there. Perfect. Let's let's wrap this up. Kim, I'm going to ask you to get out of the way because we're going to have Victoria come say okay. hi. Your sister, Victoria. Victoria, do you want to say hi to everyone? Hello, everyone. Tell us your your proper name. Victoria Caldwell. There, there you go. Okay. Um, why don't you, Victoria, just to wrap this up, Mary, we'll let you sign off, of course, but to wrap this up, do you want to talk about your mom growing up and the stories? Because the diaries didn't just appear you didn't just find them after your mother passed. There's, oh. there's a whole legend. Right. Vilma's film, film legendary life. So maybe right. you could just walk us down that path for a sure. minute or two. Sure. Okay. I'll tell you a little story of how I was growing up with my mom. And she had all these pictures. I mean, thousands, boxes, pictures, <laughs> stories of her nightlife, stories of being a camera girl, especially at Clifton's. And uh, I came across these diaries. I must have been a teenager. And I said, Mom, I'm going to read your diary just to embarrass you. And I'm going to read it in front of you. And she says, don't you dare. And then she would let me because she loved to be teased. She just loved it. And I would tease her while I was reading the diaries. And she goes, oh, how could you? Oh, oh, how could you read that? How could you do that? And then she would laugh because she would get a kick out of it. Absolutely. So I would have my childhood friends, you know, when I was a teenager, sure. when I was actually in my 20s, you know, I would just have my friends come over or she would have her friends come over and she goes, oh, oh out comes a box. Hey, do you want to see pictures of me when I was young and dating? And um, she was so enraptured by every picture. She had the memories. She remembered almost everybody. Good old Bob. Oh, look, I remember this picture. <laughs> and it was an ongoing joke. I would always say, hey, Mom, where's good old Bob? Good old John. I go, you had a date every night. Yeah, how could you have a date every night? You know, <laughs> things don't happen. And actually what would happen is that the guest would probably would, um, naturally glaze over. It's just too much information. Sure. They would glaze over and look at me and say, help. Because she was, <laughs> no, so, <laughs> and this is true. <laughs> some, no, but to be honest, some people really enjoyed it, the stories, the pictures. But um, I don't think anybody back then realized what a jewel yeah. they really had. Yeah. Their, you know, this was an absolute jewel that we had, and my mom had in her yeah. possession. Perfect. Thank you. You did a good job. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up, so I want you to, to thank everyone for listening and tell them to keep reading the blog. Yes, and I would um, really urge everybody, you know, to uh, keep on reading the blog, reading about Vilma's life. It's a nice, um, very informative story about the culture of a small town. You know, someone would say, some would say a town that, is neither here nor there in yeah. California. I would urge everyone to keep on uh, listening to stories because the stories get a little more wilder <laughs> and a little more interesting as time goes by. And um, it's also not just a story about the culture and just the Vilma. It's also 
um, a story about her faith, her Catholic faith, and her purity. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. And then, Miriam, we're gonna we're gonna turn to you. We're gonna we're gonna wrap this up, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something in your lap. We haven't talked about this. Okay. What would your mom think? About the, what? What? What would Vilma? What would Vilma say about all of this? This is this is your this is your sign off. I think, I think on the surface she would say, "What are you doing? Put, how could you?" I can just imagine her saying that, but then secretly loving it, secretly absolutely loving it and reveling in it, and saying, "What are you going to do next?" <laughs> okay, so I think I think we have our next podcast interview set up what is next and we will come back in a bit and and ask that question i want to thank you for taking the time and talking to us absolutely i want to thank you both you guys are so wonderful and taking an interest in this i I really think it's great hello my name is roger evan kislingberry nicknamed waldo from pasadena california in the bowels of my old victorian home on el molino oh and you're listening to you can't eat the sunshine but hey The moonlight tastes pretty good. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of September 7th, 2015. Our guests this week were Brian Kite. He's a managing, he is the managing principal at SRK Architects. We also spoke with Miriam and Victoria Cotwell. They are, well, Miriam is blogging her mom, her mom Vilma. Her mother's blog is Diary of Vilma the Unconquerable. And this is, they're they're taking diary excerpts, um, one blog entry at a time, and just going through her life. She's fantastic. I love them. I love Vilma. I wish, I wish, I I wish we could interview her. Um, We love hearing from you. um, And and in anticipation of what I'm about to say, I'm happy to say that... um, in this hiatus we took, I think we took, I want to say four, but it's probably a little longer. We took a three or four month hiatus. And, and in that time, um, I fixed all the problems we had with um, the, the podcast feed and iTunes. And I'm happy to say that iTunes dramatically reformed and improved the interface by which you communicate to them as a podcast creator with um, problems with you might have with their feeder updates. Well, that's because podcasts have become one of the most popular forms of audio entertainment around, and and it probably deserves a few more staff members assigned. So thanks, iTunes. <laughs> really, thank you. Yeah, really, really. Um, it's 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 a whole. Yeah, it's it's really it's really working, and um, so we're. So we want to hear from you, and and one of the ways we can hear from you is if you give us feedback. On our on our iTunes page, but Kim, I'm going to let you give the proper um, the proper spiel for the feedback loop. Well, heck, why not? We want to hear from you, and you can send us an email. You can eat the sunshine at gmail.com is an email address you can use. You can also contact us through the contact link at www.esoturic.com. You can come and see us on an esoteric bus adventure, of which we give one almost every week, or at upcoming lava events like the Forensic Science Seminar or the Skid Row Walks. And, as Richard mentioned, you can also go to iTunes and leave a review there and um, give us some stars. It helps people find the show. Kim, yes. it is time. It is time for you to bring us home. 
Okay, we've, we've been gone for months and months and months, and we're back, and we're better than ever, and we've got lots of stuff that we've kvetched about and, 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 and run up the flagpole, and I hope we've made you laugh and cry and, and wonder why why you ever missed us so much, maybe. But, um, <laughs> we, we, need, we need to wrap yet up another episode. I believe this is episode 106. So I want you, I want you to bring us on home with a quick overview of some upcoming bus tours. Nothing would make me happier. Hey, on September the 12th, it's Richard's very occasional Birth of Noir tour about the uh, writer James M. Kane, author of such greats as Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice and, of course, Mildred Pierce. It's a tour of downtown, a little bit of Hollywood, and even some Glendale. It's filling up. Would love to see you on the bus. On the 19th of September, it's Weird West Adams, a crime bus tour with a little side dish of social justice as we'll talk about some weird murders, visit a gorgeous old cemetery, and also talk about how racial covenant laws were broken nationally by some right-on brothers and sisters right there in West Adams. On the 26th of September, it's Eastside Babylon. I like to call it my most unhinged crime bus tour because it does have murders that actually give me nightmares. Um, And there's some weird ones too of course it's the east side we'll go visit that giant tamale that you heard about earlier we'll go to where the night stalker richard ramirez was captured we'll walk through evergreen cemetery and visit all my favorite carnies and circus workers that's a lot of fun that's september the 26th on october 3rd new on our calendar after being in mothballs for a long long time wild wild west side is back yes join us downtown but we'll take you to the beach and we'll go and explore some cult murder tales some wicked mothers some children in peril we'll go walk through another gorgeous cemetery there's so much to see on the west side it's weirder than you think October 10th, it's a new tour. It's our second iteration of it. It's called Hollywood with an exclamation point. Hollywood is my hometown. And I'm not just giving you any old Hollywood tour. You cannot find the stories on our Hollywood tour in the pages of Hollywood Babylon. You're not going to read them on the internet. No one else has these stories because I'm a local and I wanted to find things that even surprised me. So I've got some doozies. And believe you not, believe you me, believe it. You're going to love this tour. Did you know that it's possible to be killed by hypnosis? I didn't either until I started researching the case of the hypno-killer. Did you know that a murder was plotted in the offices of Capitol Records? I didn't either until I started researching the Capitol Records slang. And we'll also walk through beautiful crossroads of the world, a great programmatic Art Deco structure. Also coming up is Richard's Haunts of a Dirty Old Man, Charles Bukowski's Los Angeles on October the 17th. And that's a tour about finding the voice within yourself that is great, historic preservation, and loss. For instance, the loss of the Sassoni Arcade. But Clifton's will be open by then, so that's kind of interesting. That's been closed a long, long time. uh... It used to be part of that tour. We'll see if it's part of the tour in the future. And also, I want to wrap up this list. Of course, our calendar does go all the way through mid-December, including Richard's birthday bus tour, which you don't want to miss. We're going to Palos Verdes this year. But the last tour on this official list. And if you're interested, I recommend booking this one soon, because it is filling up really fast. Halloween, October 31st, this year. It's the real Black Dahlia. It is our most popular crime bus tour. It's Halloween Day, and you know you want to spend it with us and with the ghost of Elizabeth Short. Kim, we're not done because I forgot to put on the list my birthday bus. 
Okay. And you need to pitch that Saturday, November 28th, all day. Palace Virtus. And Richard. And birthday cake. And gorgeous 1920s buildings. And the lore of marine land. And the natural environment, which is gorgeous. And the boosters and the busters and the nuts and the wackos and the delights of this really interesting piece of the coast. We are ridiculous. It, it is Southern California's best-kept secret, and our co-host is going to be Monique Sujimoto. She is the archivist for the Palos Verdes Library District's history room. That means she's in charge of all the really great primary source material that that the, 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 the peninsula has on its history. And she's as big a geek as we are, so you're just going to love her. And I think you'll learn a lot, and, you know, it's going to be one of those... One-time-only birthday bus adventures. These are tours that we don't offer on our regular schedule and that we'll never do again. So if it sounds interesting to you, you definitely want to clear that slate and join us on that holiday weekend for Richard's birthday bus. And I'm, and, and I'm letting you know, and this is in the copy for the bus tour, we're keeping things a little vague for a number of reasons, one of which we have some huge surprises, which we don't want to give away. That's right. And also we're pulling stuff. That it's so far off, and it's a one-off. We're still pulling stuff together, so there's there, really there's there's a lot a lot of unexpected pleasures to be had. Exactly, and we'll see you there. All right, so we did it, um, Kim. I want to thank you for giving me giving me this this hour of our life to record um, and bookend our, our our podcasts. I appreciate it. I know lunch is a little late today as a result, and I appreciate your patience. I wanna um, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to ask you to continue to listen. We appreciate your your attention, your time, your patronage, and I want to remind you. You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Herbina between Gold mine.